Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hosea. This has happened two weeks in a row now. My main text last week came out of, we started at men's prayer in 1 Corinthians 7, and yesterday we were in 1 Corinthians 10, <laughs> and uh, some of the key verses that are going to apply to our study this morning just happened to come out of 1 Corinthians 10. We'll actually end the study there this morning. Um, I asked the worship team to do that song, Set Apart. I'm sure of this thing, uh, because I've entitled this here, Called Apart. And our text for Paul read for us earlier, we left off last week in verse 3 of chapter 6. And um, one of the points again, I know I'm being repetitive with this, that in the middle of God speaking to Israel, that in the last verse of chapter 5, in the first two verses of chapter 6, it completely changes the thought and dives into Bible prophecy. And um, you don't find these prophetic events mentioned in Daniel or in Revelation. But now that we've done that, it slips right back into him talking through Hosea to the nation of Israel. And again, remember, we just finished Ezekiel and Jeremiah, which dealt with the southern two tribes going into captivity, but we're actually regressing and going back before that, talking about the ten northern tribes. Now, Hosea would have been the last prophet to minister to these ten northern tribes. Uh, chapter 6, verse 4. O Ephraim. What shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is is like a morning cloud. And like the early dew it goes away, therefore I will hew them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Having just finished Daniel, um, beginning with Hosea and concluding with the book of Malachi, there are 12 short prophecies, um, and they're called minor prophets, uh, while Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, are, are, they're all called major prophets but only because they're bigger. Isaiah's got 66 books in it, and these are much shorter. A couple of them have just one chapter. A couple of them have two. A couple of them have three. But as we look at this this morning, I need to lay a little bit of a foundation and then uh, hopefully connect the dots. Not only the history of what happened and caused them to go into captivity to the Assyrians, but how identical it is to what's going on in our own country today. So they started with a foundation, and the Lord told them what that foundation was, and Paul actually sang a song about it, the second one this morning. And that goes back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. So I'm going to have you start there for laying down, of course, called apart. It all began with a man named Abraham, who was from of the Chaldeans, and God called them apart. And he said, I want you to leave your home, and I want to take you to a land that I'm going to show you. Well, he got there eventually, 
Um, but he was set apart to be a man of faith who would walk by faith. And as time would go on, we find that uh, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then eventually the 400 years in Egypt, and their deliverance from Egypt, and God gave them not just 10 commandments, but 613, and the foundation of the commandments uh, are really all summed up in the word love. So if you're in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse 4, and actually I was only going to read down to verse 9, but uh, because we're in Hosea, I really need to read all the verse 25. So here's the foundation. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, chapter 6. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You will teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. When you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your houses and on your gates. Let me just stop. Israel has taken this literally, and what I'm holding in my hand, I picked up in Israel in one of our trips. Uh, this is called a masusa, and um, how many of you have watched a Jewish person uh, before he goes into a house, touch something, you know, and then kiss it? Well, this is what they're kissing. But what's inside of here is a scroll. It's, it's called the, the Shiva, and it's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. So when it says, put it on the doorpost of your heart, every Jewish family has one of these. And whenever you're visiting, you're always seeing them kissing the door or whatever before they enter in. Now, the rest of the chapter is really going to be Israel's failure. But again, it's the foundation. It's what the Lord wanted. First and foremost, that to love the Lord your God. Now, in verse 10... It shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which uh, you did not fill or hew out, wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, uh, when you have eaten and are full. He says, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, and you shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods and the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. You shall diligently keep his commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies, his statutes, and his command towards you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, 
that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord sworn to your fathers, to cast out all of your enemies from before you, as the Lord has spoken. When your son asks you in times to come, saying, well, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you will say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all of his household. And then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all of his statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our, our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all of these commandments. Let's turn back to Hosea. There's a foundation for the nation. Love first. The land that you go to, make sure you don't backslide after you've been blessed, that um, you forget the Lord. And you slip slide away, so to speak, into um, the customs and the worship of these pagan gods in the land that I'm bringing you into. Now, when they finally made it into the land, Moses couldn't do it. He represented the law. Joshua, it says um, in uh, the first chapter of John, it says the, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So you can't enter into God's promises through the law, good place for it, amen, but only through grace. So it's a picture. In this book this morning, I'm going to make the point, it's a picture. So Moses couldn't bring the people in because he represents the law and you can't enter the promises of God through the law. Only through grace and truth. Now Joshua, I'll read in just a little bit, and Hashua, actually mean God is salvation, and he was the one who brought the people into the promised land. It wasn't Moses. And they did pretty good for one generation. As long as Joshua was leading them, and again, we have a picture there. As long as Joshua, a picture of Jesus, was leading them, well, they did just fine. But Joshua died. And as a result... They weren't content, and um, they wanted now to be not called apart, but they wanted to be like everybody else. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'll give you a moment to get there. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a king because the other nations had a king. Uh, I'll pick it up and we'll read the first eight verses here. And this was the attitude after Joshua's time. They began to say things. Uh, chapter 1 Samuel 8, 1, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn was Joel. And the name of the second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But 
His sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said, look, you're old. And your sons, they don't walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us just like the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Started well. They left the foundation. They were no longer a called apart people, but they wanted to be a people just like everybody else. So they got their king. Samuel warned him, you get a king, he's going to enlist your men in the army, he's going to tax you, and he, the list went on and on, but if a king you want, king you got. They got Saul for 40 years. After Saul, they got David for 40 years, and after David, they got Solomon for 40 years. But here is where the kingdom splits. And we have a divided kingdom. And um, the first king that went to the north, um, we're going to read in just a couple chapters what he did to keep the people from going down to Jerusalem uh, to worship there. Uh, He set up two golden calves. That's actually in the book of, of Hosea. But the first king, his name was Jeroboam. And he took... Ten northern tribes, and he goes all the way to the north. It's referred to as Ephraim, but that was one of the twelve tribes, but only because they were the largest. When we read through this, it's also referred to as Israel. So sometimes you're reading Israel, and sometimes you're reading Ephraim. Uh, they both mean the same thing. These ten northern t- tribes that left under the leadership of Jeroboam, um, they had 19 kings. And there was two tribes in the south that was called Judah, and that was uh, under Jeroboam. Over um, a period of time from 931 B.C. to the time they were taken into captivity in 710 B.C., they had ten kings. And not one of them was a good king. Every time you read of the kings of, of Israel, this is what it says. They did evil in the sight of the Lord after the sins of their father, J.R. Boehm, without exception. Nineteen of them. So when we were reading this morning in the psalm, and the Lord says, I'm going to uproot you because you aren't called apart. You're actually wanting to be. And not only did they want to be, but eventually they became worse than the people and the Canaanites that were in the land before them. So eventually... As we're going to see here, Hosea is going to be the last one, the last prophet to speak to them. But God is going to use the Assyrians to take them out of the land, never to return. 
Um, some people call this the ten lost tribes. Um, they're not lost. God knows exactly where they are. If they show up in Revelation chapter 7, and no, they're not Jehovah Witnesses. Just, just, just for the record. And I like to tell my Jehovah Witness friends when they knock on my door, I said, well, you do, believe, do you believe the word of God you know, is complete and accurate? And they're, oh, yeah, we do. And I said, well, I'm confused then, because when I read Revelation 7, it says 12,000 after the tribe of, of um, Benjamin and 12,000 after the, the tribe of, of Jacob, of um, um, Issachar, whatever. And he lists the 12 off. And um, if that's the case, they're going to go, oh, no, 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 no. God, God is through with them. And he's given those promises now to the Jehovah Witnesses. We're, we're the 144,000. Oh, you mean to tell me that God is through with Israel? Hmm, interesting. Can you just open your Bible to um, uh, Romans 11 and just read the first verse for me there? They got a heart. Once they get out of their comfort zone, they get uncomfortable. So they're trying to find the book of Romans, number one. <laughs> and then when they read verse 11, it begins by saying, Has God cast off his people? Certainly not. And 9, 10, and 11 is God's plan for Israel. God has not cast off his people. And he has a plan for the remnant. And this is where a lot of Hosea, and my point here is that even though they were dispersed into the land, never to return, it's going to be different from the southern two tribes because in the south we have Judah and Benjamin, two tribes, And um, we have roughly 124 years after they were, 10 tribes were taken into Assyria. Now we have what we've just been studying the last couple months, Ezekiel and Jeremiah with one message, remember? You guys are going into captivity for 70 years. But different from the 10 other tribes, I'm going to bring you back after those 70 years and you'll rebuild the city and you'll rebuild it Rebuild the temple. So in 931 to 586 BC, Judah had 20 kings, of which eight were good kings and 12 were evil. God wanted, and he actually said this in, um, I think it was Jeremiah, God wanted Judah not to make the same mistakes of the 10 northern tribes. Uh, They fell to the Assyrians. He wanted an object lesson. They didn't, you guys weren't watching what happened to them. You fell into the same thing. And um, as a result, Jeremiah and Ezekiel warned them, but Judah would not listen. As I just said, Hosea is going to be the last prophet to speak to the ten northern tribes. Now the names Hosea, Joshua, and Jesus are all derived from the same Hebrew word. The word Hoshea means salvation, but Joshua and Jesus, they sort of include an extra idea. Yahweh is salvation. So the book of Joshua, as God's messenger, Hosea offers the possibility of salvation if only the nation would turn from idolatry and return back to their Lord, just like we read back in Deuteronomy, their foundation. Now, how God goes about in communicating. Turn to um, 
Hosea 12, verses 9 and 10. Here we read in verse 9, But I am the Lord your God. Ever since the land of Egypt, I again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. Then he says, I have spoken by the prophets. I have multiplied visions, and I have given them, now if you have, like I do, the New King James, it says symbols. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. Now, if you're here and you have the King James, it says similitudes. I actually like that word better. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to tell the whole story of the northern Teban tribes. I'm going to use Hosea as a prophet, but I'm going to do it with similitudes. In other words, I'm going to act out a play, uh, sort of like a parable, so that they can really understand it. It's, it's best described, if you go back to chapter 1, you have, it, you have the whole book summed up in the first two verses of how God is going to speak to them. So Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the sons of Joash, the kings of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, I want you to go uh, and take yourself a wife who's a harlot and children of harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. And so he does. So he says, Hosea, we're going to play this thing out. Um, You as Hosea, are you going to be representing me as God? And you're going to marry this gal whose name is Gomer. She's a prostitute. She's a harlot. And you're going to go marry her. And then he makes a direct connection. He connects it up because that's what's happened to my people. I loved my people. I laid a foundation for them told them to love me first. Don't go after these other gods or I will have to take you out of the country. And um, he's likening it to romance and a real love as a husband would have for his wife. But in this case, the husband is faithful and true and Gomar, even after uh, marrying Hosea, has a child by Hosea, goes out and plays the harlot again, and then the Lord says to him, if we'd read the rest of this chapter, we have the names of the son, uh, Jezreel, Lorahama, which means I will no longer have mercy on him. And um, the last one was um, Loamai, which means I will not be your God. So that the very names of the children is saying, as, and this is, of all the books that I've read, that it says it's so <laughs> repetitive. I don't know another book like Hosea that says the same thing in a different way over and over and over again. And it's been consistent uh, as we've been making it through it. So here he is acting out this part that um, here's this husband who loves this harlot, Israel. He doesn't want to let her go. But she won't let go of her harlotry. 
And this is both spiritually speaking and literally speaking. They committed physical sexual relationship on the high places as a form of worship to Baal. But also spiritual idolatry in that this love was supposed to be directed to the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, let me get sidetracked here and again remind us why it's so important, gang, especially in these days, that we teach God's word chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Because when you do get to 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 10, 6, it says, now these things became our examples. The question is, what things? Well, unless you studied the Old Testament, you don't have no idea what he's talking about. So he says, they became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. And then in the same chapter, verse 11, now all these happened to them as examples. Well, we got to understand who's the thems. <laughs> the thems are the ten northern tribes in this case. It's also relating to Moses when they became, um, they got sick and tired of the man and they wanted meat. And they lusted after it. And in the context there, that's what he's referring to. Uh, that they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages to come. He says that one more time in Romans 15, 4, he says, for whatever things were written before, that's Hosea, were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Here, Hosea is, is a representative, it's a book over and over of God's love for his people Israel. But she played the harlot until finally God used Assyria, which would have been the world-dominating empire uh, before Babylon, to judge them. And they literally committed uh, physical and spiritual uh, adultery against the Lord by worshiping the Baals on the high places. Uh, They never were to return to the land, unlike Judah, who did come back after the Babylonian captivity, uh, after they spent 70 years there. Now, in Isaiah, you can turn there if you want to, it's just one verse. Isaiah 11.11 tells us that I'm going to regather them again a second time into the land. Well, it begs the question, what was the first time? Well, they were without a temple for 70 years. And after 70 years, they were allowed to go back under uh, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Ezra. And they came back in the land and, and rebuilt the temple. Now, I just think it's awful interesting that um, the second time, that the temple was destroyed was in 70 A.D. Israel has not had a temple since the 10th Roman Legion and Titus came down. And as Jesus said in Luke 19, because you didn't know the day. And this is what Daniel 9 is all about. This is the day in in Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. It's not just an ordinary day. Happened to be April 632 A.D., the very day we call Palm Sunday, that they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the day 
that the Lord has made. April 6, 32 AD, right to the day. And so um, they have not been taken out of the land until Titus and the Roman Legion came in in 70 AD. The reason most Protestant and Roman Catholic do not take a literal view of the book of Revelation, they lean, unfortunately, upon their own understanding. When you get to the book of Revelation in the year 1100, unless you're a Bible teacher, and and it's all about Israel, and there is no Israel. So what do you do? Uh, You could be a hardcore Bible-believing Christian and say, well, I don't know, but if the Bible says they're going to be back in the land in the last days, then somehow, some way, God's going to do it. But others, um, uh, a lot of the well-respected Bible teachers in the early days, we call the church fathers, got this wrong too. Um, There was no Israel, so they thought, well, because Israel rejected Jesus, God has rejected Israel, therefore the promises, we call it replacement theology, is replaced from Israel, and now the church gets it. Which, of course, is it true, they leaned upon their own understanding. So as we look at next year, do you realize that it'll be next year, exactly 70 years that they'll be back in the land? I just think it's interesting. 69, but now it's 70. Reminds me of the 70-year captivity. They didn't have a temple for 70 years. And right now, what's the talk of the world in Jerusalem? The Temple Mount. That's what's keeping people awake at night. And that little fat guy in North Korea, that's keeping us wondering whether or not he's going to actually, he's crazy enough to push the button. I have, I have no doubt about that. He took out a brother, he took out a general, just because he, the guy looked at him weird. Like I look at Chris, kill him. <laughs> I mean, that's just how isolated they've become and just how much of a dictator a person can be. Uh, We need to pray for our friends in South Korea, in Guam, because I don't think this guy is kidding. And I don't think Trump is kidding either. And I better quit there, because I will really get sidetracked and get back to the Bible study. But our country, um, so it's just interesting to me that we might have a temple after 70 years. I just think it's interesting. I think that way. My brain kind of goes, that's interesting. Uh, They're trying to find a solution. Any man out there, bring us all together so everybody can be happy? Well, we'll see. All right, now I'm going to switch gears. And um, what happened to Israel, I'm not saying that God made a covenant like he did with Israel in comparing it to the United States. But I am going to say that when our country was founded, in the Declaration of Independence, July 4, 1776, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal stations to which the law of nature, of nature's God-entitled earth, Um, 
uh, to a decent and to respect of the opinions of mankind uh, requires that there should be declared the causes which impel them to the separation. In other words, called out. The United States was called out and they're making their stand against uh, the Britain tyranny. And of course, these are the, I'll just read the first paragraph because it's the most famous. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, driving their just powers from the consent of the governed. In other words, they're saying we're setting ourselves apart because God made all people equal and they shouldn't be under tyranny. Well, from 1776 to just over 100 years later, so let's fast forward 100 years to the late 1800s. I got, um, I always get uh, T.A. McMahon's um, Brian call. Talked to T.A. this week. And because uh, Carol Matriciani went to be with the Lord and Ray Youngen went to be with the Lord, we're putting together a tribute. And um, uh, I was talking to T.A., and he said, well, of course, as soon as I get back to uh, Oregon, we'll put something together so that, that when you have the tribute for Carol and, and um, Ray Youngen, that uh, we want to be a part of that because they're part of the apologetics ministry. We're sort of a family in a family. And we all know each other. But T.A. quotes this guy named Anderson. I don't know who he is. And, uh, but this is what he said in the late 1800s. This blew my mind when I read it. What are some of the, those consequences that he noted 118 years ago? So now T.A. is going backwards 118 years to the late 1800s. See if you recognize any relationships with the uh, erroneous beliefs, practices, and religious and political agenda of our day. Number one, the increasing antagonism of the world toward biblical Christianity. Number two, the the, the apostasy as it grows exponentially within Christendom. Number three, the growing belief that worldwide revival is coming The world will be converted, and Christianity will take dominion prior to Christ's return. We call that dominionism. Number four, the idea that the new age is dawning, with pantheism being its chief doctrine. Somewhere in the back of my head, I got the age of Aquarius going on after reading that. The teaching that God is all and in all. That's what Warren's going to be talking about when he comes to our prophecy conference this fall. The hope that science will ultimately reveal all knowledge. Number seven, the belief that evolution is how the world came about. Number eight, the concept that mankind is involved, evolving into Godhead. And number nine, that's Hinduism, by the way. And number nine, the last one, uh, the argument that these false beliefs will unify humanity. Gang, this guy said this over 118 years ago, and it's what we're watching unfolding. He nailed it spot on back then. 
In other words, from the time of the Constitution, that was our foundation. And um, to the late 1800s, this guy's watching the downfall from then. Like Hosea, we have left our foundation. I know it's not a popular place for an amen, but it's a true place for an amen. Amen? We've left our foundation, and it's only getting worse, and we shouldn't be a bit surprised. Because the Lord said, in these days, when you see Israel back in the land, um, things will become worse and worse, not better and better. There will be a great falling away, the apostasy. People will gravitate towards what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. And we, we see it happening, and this guy Anderson had the insight to see it in the late 1800s. Okay, what is our foundation? Well, we have a foundation. Uh, let's begin by turning to the book of Acts, chapter 2. This is just not a Calvary Chapel distinctive. This is the book of Acts. This is a first century early church foundation. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, of course, it's the day of Pentecost. And um, 3,000 people get saved. Um, in verse 41, I always, I always like to think of, this is when the Spirit came, 3,000 people got saved. When Moses came down the mountain, you know, Charlton Heston with the two tablets, and they were parting around the golden calf, how many people died that day? Exactly 3,000 people. So what does the law bring? Death. But what does the spirit bring? Life. That's not a coincidence, gang. You know, the intricacy and how the Holy Spirit connects these is meant to increase your faith so that you go, wow, this is quite a book. And there's no way that man had anything to do with it. So our foundation, here you have the cornerstone, the foundation of the church. Verse 42, after they were baptized and saved, verse 42, they continued steadfastly. That means all the time. In the apostles' doctrine, that's Bible study, all the time. Fellowship, all the time. Breaking of bread, we did it last Sunday. We do it the first Sunday of the month. And in prayers, you need your own prayer life um, with, with the fellowship of men's prayer and women's prayer. But like Paul was saying earlier, you need to get alone and do your own walking and talking with Jesus. Um, and know for sure that you know that still small voice above everything else. Now all who believed were together. Had They had all things in common. They sold their possession and goods and divided them among anybody that had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You know, they never had crusades, so to speak. They never had people walking the altar during these times. It's usually just one-on-one. One-on-one with Jesus talking to the people. Hey, you come and follow me. Or the disciples, one-on-one, ministering and going around. Not having people come to one place, but Paul actually going around to other places. And uh, as a result, you know, that's how the church grew. But the Lord was the one who was doing the work. Another good place for an amen. 
not man. All right. Uh, the basic foundation, just flip back to Matthew chapter 28. We call it the Great Commission. It's not the Great Suggestion, okay? It's the Great Commission. So we read in verse 18, the Lord is saying before he goes, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now this next part is very important. It's called discipleship. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the age. These are the foundation stones, gang, of the Christian church. It started and had its beginning at Pentecost. That's when the foundation was laid. And the church will have its end when he takes us out of here, hopefully before the end of the day. (laughs) And that will be the rapture of the church. And that will be the church age. Israel was to be a witness that there's one God and no other. They were to be an influence to the pagan world, the society that they lived in. They were the ones who were supposed to be doing the influencing. Just as we are, the church today, we are the ones who are to be witnesses of one God, and we are to be the one who is influencing the world and not the world influencing the church. With that, let's back it up with Scripture and have you turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12. The word beseech there is I plead with you very much. I beg you. Chapter 12, verse 1. I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable thing. For what the Lord has done for us, what I deserve and what he took in my place, for me just to say, Lord, here I am. If you want me, you got me. And um, it's a reasonable thing to do in light of what he has done for us. And then he gives us instructions. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Uh, It's a sanctification process. Baby Christians drink milk. You give them Hebrews 6, the ABCs, the elementary principles. But like I often say, no matter how old you are in the Lord, how mature you are, how much you've developed, gang, the deeper you go, the deeper it gets. You'll always be discovering Wonderful new treasures as you dive into this book. And the instructions is, I set you guys apart. You know the the word church means called out ones? It, It means we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And so we are to be an influence. And, um, when my friend Pat was here last week, you know, one of my fears is that when guy has committed his whole life to be a missionary in Cameroon that somebody doesn't have a guilt complex out there because, oh, I should be doing that. No. The Bible says, whatever state you were in when the Lord called you, stay there. So if it was Wisconsin, you stay in Wisconsin, you know. No, that's not it. 
whatever job position you had. Don't feel guilty by feeling, well, i got to do what Pat does because he's a missionary there. No, he got that calling. God called him to be a missionary. But he's called you to be a housewife, so be a housewife or a carpenter. And if the Lord calls you out of that, then fine. But unless he has, don't feel guilty because Pat's showing these wonderful works that the Lord is doing in the prisons and in in the hospitals over uh, in Cameroon. So in these verses here, uh, our foundation, our example is not to conform to this world. We're set apart or even love it. What do you mean by that, Dwight? Well, for that, you need to turn to 1 John chapter 2. It really gets down to this whole idea of we're just we're just passing through, gang. This is not our home, and we're we're to live like pilgrims and strangers, and realize that that this isn't it. First John two verse fifteen: Do not love the world, or the things that are in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, it's of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Well, what's the will of God? That's what the disciples wanted to know in John 6. Lord, what can we do that we can do the works of God? And the Lord looked at him and said, you can believe on the one whom the Father sent. That's it? There's got to be something else I can do. Yeah, love the Lord your God above everything else. And then, by the way, love your neighbor, too, along with it. And then he says, if you'll just do that, if you'll stay in um, Bible studies, church, prayer, fellowship, communion, I always like to say, that's doable. I can do that my whole Christian life, as long as there's not anything else added into it, like works on my part. So in 1 John chapter 3, 1 through 3, it gets back to love. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. We're in Hosea, and he's liking himself, Hosea, as God, and his people as Israel. Well, here, um, our Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. We're also called to Jesus, the bride of Christ. There we should, therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we're going to be like him for we will see him as he is. Now this plays out in a real practical form. And in verse 17, let's just finish out the chapter 17 through 21. It says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in needs and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? If that doesn't remind me of the good Samaritan, I don't know what does. They had compassion on the guy. Not the two religious guys that walked by. They could have cared less. It was a Samaritan. 
that had compassion. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Now, like Israel, we have our foundation. And again, we get back to what is, a lawyer came up to him one day. And he says, uh, what's, um, what's the greatest commandment? And in Matthew 22, the Lord told him, what's the greatest commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And it says, if you keep that, a natural thing happens. Owe no man anything, it says, except to love one another, because he who loves one another completes the law. Well, how does that happen? Well, you see, if I, if I like Mike Law here, I mean Mike Grace, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> if I love him, I'm not going to be in his garage dripping off his lawnmower. You see, that's what love does. It's more like, can I cut your grass instead? And... Um, it fulfills the law because you're not thinking of covenanting it or stealing it, but how can I show my generosity because I'm a Christian by doing a good work? Now, we're not saved by works, but works faith without works is dead. It, it proves that we do have faith. Amen on that one? Amen. All right, let's finish it up. My little children, let, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. We've read that already. Let's go back. Like Israel, let's see if we can connect these dots. Like Israel, in Hosea's days, much of the church and America is committing sexual and spiritual fornication. Today, it is no big deal at all for couples living together. And yes, I'm talking to Christians. You need to know that the Bible calls this fornication. And you're deceiving yourself if you think you're going to heaven and you're living in this condition. Pretty strong words, Dwight. Can you back them up? 1 Corinthians 6 9 says, Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, who are they? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicator, first one on the list, or idolaters or adulterers or homosexuals or sodomites or thieves or covetous or drunkards or revilers or extortioners are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Loose translation, if you're sleeping around and you're not married, you're committing fornication and you're deceived by thinking you're going to heaven. Pretty strong words. We are, as believers, to be light to the world Yet, like Hosea, the world is influencing the church for now we're ordaining homosexuals into the ministry, having them head up the worship team. And what is that saying? Well, it's like 1 Corinthians 5. There was a guy that was messing around in the church sexually. Everybody knew about it. And Paul says, I'm not there, but I'm going to judge this thing even before I get there. Get rid of him. Remove him immediately and give him to the devil and pray for the destruction of his flesh. 
What does that mean? It says take him out of fellowship because a little leaven leavens a whole lump. That's where that verse comes from, gang. Because everybody knew about it, but nobody was doing anything about it. Everybody's walking around on eggshells. But here's the good news. You read 2 Corinthians, and the guy repents. And Paul comes back and says, you know, I don't like to do that. I, I found no pleasure in having to disfellowship this person. Then enjoy it a bit. But it worked. That guy found out what it's like being turned over to the devil for the destruction of his flesh. And then it goes on to say that his soul might be saved. What does that mean? It means it wasn't going to be saved. But he repented. Praise the Lord. And now what does Paul say? Listen, I don't want you treating him any different than anybody else. I want you to love on him. I don't want him to feel like a second-class Christian. So you go out of your way. If you've fallen and, and now you're, you're back or whatever, and um, um, you need to be loved on more than me. I don't know who else to pick out. <laughs> Everybody gets the point, though, right? No second-class Christians. When the Lord forgives, he forgets, and we do the same. So, um, but the fact of the matter is, that's where our nation is at today. I just found out this this week, um, that there's a summer camp for transgender children from the ages of four to eight out in California. A summer camp. And uh, the camp seems like any other Children arrive with a packed lunch, make friendships, bracelets, sing songs, get silly. But each day at check-in, campers uh, make a name tag with their pronoun of choice. Some opt for he, some for she, others choose they, or something else. And enrollment at the camp is booming. The number of children at the San Francisco Bay Camp have tripled to about 60 youngsters, from 4 to 12. Census opened three summers ago with kids coming from away, far away as Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., even Africa. This is um, talk of opening branches of the camp all the way across the country. Now, um, Mary did a little research for me this week and came up from something from um, John Hopkins Medical School of Psychology, and um, I'm going to read it. It's only eight points, so bear with me as I read this. This is a study conducted. American College of Pediatrics reached a decision. Transgenderism of children is child abuse is the name of the title. Um, The American College of Pediatrics uh, issued a statement this week condemning gender reclassification in children by stating that transgenderism in children amounts to child abuse. The American College of Pediatrics urged educators and legislatures to reject all policies that condition children to accept as normal a life of chemical and surgical uh, impersonation of the opposite sex. Facts, not ideology determine reality. And then it goes on to list eight things that they fear. The first one is, number one, human sexuality is an object, biological, binary trait, and it's either XY or XX. 
are genetic uh, makers of health. No genetic makers of a disorder. Number two, no one, was, no one is born with a gender. Everyone is born with a biological sex. Gender, or an awareness and sense of oneself as male or female, is, uh, psycho- is a psychological concept, not an objective biological one. Number three, a person's belief that he or she is something other is something they are not, it at best is a sign of confused thinking. When an otherwise healthy biological boy believes he's a girl, or an otherwise healthy biological girl believes she's a boy, an objective psychological problem exists that lies in the mind, not the body, and it should be treated as such. Number four, puberty is not a disease, and Puberty-blocking hormones can be dangerous. Reversible or not, puberty-blocking hormones include a state of disease, the absence of puberty, and inhibited growth and fertility in a previous biologically healthy child. Number five, according to the DSMV, as many as 98% of gender-confused boys and 88% of gender-confused girls eventually accept their biologically sexed after naturally passing through puberty. Children, number six, who use puberty blockers to impersonate the opposite sex will require cross-sex hormones in late adolescence and cross-sex hormones testosterone and estrogen, are associated with a dangerous health health risk, including but not limited to high blood pressure, blood clots, stroke, and cancer. Seven, and this is a heavy one, the rates of suicides are 20 times greater among adults who use cross-sex hormones and undergo sex reassessment surgery. Even in Sweden, which is among the most LGBT, QT-affirming countries. And the last one, conditioning children into believing a lifetime of chemical and surgical impersonations of the opposite sex is normal and healthy as child abuse. Now, this is John Hopkins University speaking, but nobody's, you're not going to hear this on the CBS Evening News. You're going to be hearing just, just the opposite. But... We don't need any of this anyway because the Bible says, like we just read in uh, 1 Corinthians, that um, don't be deceived. Those that engage in such things, you know, I'll tell you what's coming into my mind right now. The Lord says, Any, anyone that messes with one of my little ones, anybody that takes and messes with the faith of my little ones and twists the scriptures, It'd be better for that guy if a millstone were, were put around his neck and then him drowned in the deepest sea rather than stand before me on Judgment Day. And that's what they're doing. Between four and eight, how much discernment did you have? Oh, I don't know. I just wanted chocolate chip cookies. That's all I could remember. That's as far as my discernment went. All right, let's see if we can wind this thing up. Um, someone told me this week, just to show you how far we've gone from our foundation. Someone told me this week, I'd never heard of it before, 
some Christians on Facebook were talking of a Game of Thrones. Now, it's on HBO, and we don't have HBO, so I never really heard it, but I'll read a paragraph of what this is. It's a question that's sent to Pastor John asking about, before you watch Game of Thrones, an article by Tony Renke. It's addressed to Pastor John. Do you believe there is a difference between film nudity versus pornography? I know many Christians who are against porn, but they have no issues watching movie or TV shows that show graphic nudity. A young woman named Emily emailed this question to uh, her pastor named John, and uh, a day later, uh, Adam emailed to ask Pastor John, what would you say to a Christian who watches the cable TV show Game of Thrones? This is a TV series rated TV mature and has become rather infamous for ex- explicit nudity, sex scenes, and for graphic scenes of rape and sexual violence against women. Game of Thrones is now the most popular series in HBO history with an average attendance of more than 23 million viewers every week. Christians, we're called apart. These are the things that the world is into and should have nothing to do. Now, last verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll close. Hosea is a book that was the end of an era for Israel. They had no good kings. They did what they wanted to. They committed sexual immorality. And it's all played out in a scene. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read, because of time, I'm just going to read the two verses that I mentioned. Go down to verse 6. It's talking about um, the Lord providing for them, but they murmured and complained in the wilderness, and God was not pleased and scattered their bodies in verse 5. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust, which can have many different forms, after evil things as they lusted. Uh, Go to verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. Why do we study the book of Hosea? Because this is an, it's an example. This is what happened to them. Did they have a good foundation in the beginning? Oh, yeah. Did they get away from it? To the point that God had to set them outside of the land. We are called to be in the world, but not to be of it. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And um, as we make our way through the book of Hosea, I pray individually, Lord, we'd take this to heart. And um, Lord, search our hearts and point out anything that's not pleasing to you. And help us not be stubborn or rebellious. But as your word says today, if we hear your voice, that we wouldn't harden our heart but we'd be listening. Lord, thank you for your word. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.